a little bit. My name is Stephen Pinecker of Mormon Book Reviews. That's the name of my YouTube channel. And the name of this presentation is An Evangelical Encounters, the Book of Mormon and the Restoration. Um, so I just want to start off, give some background. Um, so ever since I was a young child, I was very spiritually minded and, and always felt, um, I don't know, I guess you could say letter of the Lord. And I just want you guys to understand a little bit about what kind of background I have in regards to uh, being um, I'm from like Dutch reformed uh, stock, you know, on both sides. So that would be the, the traditional background. Um, my grandfather comes from a farmer and my father, um, my father, my mother's side um, is farmer and my dad's side came from the city of Chicago. So you have a mixture of the two of the two different Dutch communities. But starting in the late 60s, early 70s, we had what was called the charismatic renewal movement, which really uh, exploded across all the particular denominations is of Protestantism, as well as um, the, within Catholicism. So my father was head of a group called the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association, which was very instrumental in bringing about a lot of ecumenical and unity um, into the church. And uh, so uh, I was raised in a household in which miracles happened and people spoke with angels and people had visions. Um, so a lot of the things that I read about within Mormonism, uh, those things don't scare me. Um, and so I think it's really important that the context of the era that my parents raised in was in 1975, you had the Worldwide Church of God, the Jehovah's Witnesses, both predicting that the world was going to be coming to an end in 1975. The best-selling book of the 1970s was called The Late Great Planet Earth with, uh, by, uh, by uh, Oh, geez, his name escapes me. I, I know. Well, the number one selling book was the great, late Great Planet Earth, which, is a, which was an evangelical book about the end of the world. Hal Lindsey wrote that book. So it, there was an expectation at this time with the charismatic movement. We were at the end of the road here that the second coming was imminent. And so uh, and just so I'll give you some context for some of those who are based out of Salt Lake City or that your church headquarters is. Um, my parents, I remember seeing the survival food that they had in the garage, so they were kind of like preppers, so even a similarity there with the, with, uh, with the Salt Lake branch. So I think all these things kind of prepared me for this kind of interesting uh, thing. So as a young child, I was very spiritually minded, but I also sometimes thought that, you know, um, people aren't reading the Bible and the gospel isn't being shared with people, and I sometimes wonder, I wonder if we need a Bible for modern times. That was, a, that was an idea that I thought as a child. So um, that, that so the, the fact that a young a young man in the 1800s uh, thought the same thing and and, and also in, encountered you know uh, you know as we as the history tells us uh, new scripture, I also realized that the the evangelical notion that the canon is closed uh, is a Catholic doctrine and there's nothing in scripture that does close the canon. So um, that was later in life, but I realized that that was not an issue. So let me explain to you my first encounter with the Book of Mormon, which was at a Marietta Hotel. And I want to specifically show this edition of the Book of Mormon, um, because this is actually a relatively rare edition. Uh, this came out in 1980, and I remember the cover, but I could never find it anywhere. But then I, I went on a Book of Mormon edition's YouTube channel, and he talked about how this is a relatively rare edition. So it kind of dates it. This is 1980. So thereabouts, probably I was about seven maybe eight years old. I'm not really sure when this would have been. If so, it would have been the early 80s. And um, I encountered a Book of Mormon. And one of the things that really struck me was the imagery of the Book of Mormon. So imagine this young kid who has taught all these Bible stories, okay? And, um, and he sees something like 
I'm sorry, my assistant cut him off, but of course, here's Jesus appearing uh, to the new world. And I look at this and I'm thinking, well, this looks like the second coming happening during the Old Testament. So it's kind of confusing to my young mind. You know, what is this? What's the story going on here? And of course, then you have the battles where you have the Samuel, the Lamanite. And, and in this case, you have the bad Nephites, uh, if you will, um, going after Samuel, the Lamanite. And um, so that was kind of a, a stunning image to me, just to see these, these two particular ones really uh, stuck with me. Um, and so as a child, I went to my parents and asked them, um, what is this uh, Book of Mormon? I don't understand what this is all about. And of course, their standard answer was, well, this is like a different church. They have a different Bible and they're based out in Salt Lake City. They didn't really know anything about the Mormons. But the idea really stuck with me and really intrigued me. And I like to point out this particular painting on the end here, because this was not in that edition. This was not painted by Arnold Freiberg. Of course, Arnold Freiberg, very important character. You guys well, some of you, you know, obviously this is the Utah branch. So just to give you a background on Arnold Freiberg, um, he's very influential in the imagery of the, of the Utah view of who, what Nephi looked like, what Lehi looked like. Um, but also um, he was actually very instrumental in creating the aesthetic of the great movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston in the 1950s. He was Cecil B. DeMille's art, uh, kind of like he was the person who came up with the concepts of how the look of The Ten Commandments and actually Cecil B. DeMille wanted to make a Book of Mormon movie. Uh, that's how impressed he was by Arnold Freiberg and what he was doing. But this painting here on the far right of Moroni burying the plates, okay? Um, if I had seen that when I was seven or eight years old, I really am convinced that I would have been, uh, I, I joke, I probably would have been converted right on the spot because it was so earnest and spoke to me in a very uh, powerful way. So th that's just a little bit about um, how the imagery, because, you know, as a child, images and pictures are going to be more influential than necessarily the words. So that was just something that was in the back of my head. And then I'm just going to go back. So, and then my other encounter with Mormonism was in the early eighties, the channel 38 in Chicago, which was about the largest Christian television station in the country ran the God makers. And I saw all the God makers cartoon and uh, that left a real impact, but that was, you know, spiritual propaganda. There was nothing, no truth to that, but I do remember seeing, encountering the cartoon as a young child. So that was my image of Mormonism was a distorted one through the God makers and these images from the Book of Mormon and my, my parents kind of just a stereotypical view of the, something that they don't, didn't really know much about. So the very first time that I had a real a, where I really delved into the Book of Mormon with another person was when I interviewed Christopher Thomas, the author of A Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon, a literary and theological introduction. And Christopher Thomas is uh, probably one of the top two or three Pentecostal um, theologians in the world. I mean, I just found out recently he's Princeton educated and everything like that. So he did this real in-depth study of the Book of Mormon. And it's a... Uh, he takes the text very seriously. Um, he's not there to mock. He's there to really look at it as a literary critic and take and, and look at the text and what is the text saying. So it dawned on me after I'd done this stuff with him that it's like, well, this is the first time I ever actually had an in-depth conversation with somebody about the Book of Mormon. Well, I think that kind of leads to kind of some of my what I want to discuss about the Book of Mormon, and that is what this evangelical finds accessible in the Book of Mormon. And, and I'll say this, this in particular, I probably should have said what a, a evangelical may find accessible, because some of this is what I would find accessible, and then what other evangelicals as a whole would find accessible. Well, first of all, Jesus saturates the Book of Mormon. Jesus saturates it in such a way that um, 
that the Old Testament, it's, it, there, are, uh, there are types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, I personally, since a young age, kind of think that Melchizedek might have been Christ um, in the Bible. So I, I do think that might have been uh, a pre-incarnate Christ. But the idea that people were calling themselves Christians and they were building churches before the time of Christ, um, you know, of course, that's, it's kind of jarring, right, um, to, to somebody who understands, you know, tr the traditional, uh, um, you know, narrative of church history. But um, I like the fact that Jesus is in the Book of Mormon. Um, when I, and then I say the Book of Mormon is more Trinitarian than much of the Bible. Now, most theologians, when they look at the Book of Mormon, they would say that it's more modulistic uh, than than Trinity, I mean, it's a Trinity, form of Trinitarian, which would be modulism, which was considered a heresy back in the day. But it's still more Trinitarian than much of the Bible. Now, the most like most recognizable uh, Trinitarian verse in um, in the New Testament is in the Book of John, um, and it's interesting because that particular uh, Trinitarian scripture was uh, not in the original manuscripts. As a matter of fact, it was added in by Eras Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus, when um, some people were saying, hey, why don't you have this, uh, the Trinitarian formula in here? And he said, well, because it's not in the Greek. So get me a Greek manuscript and I'll put it in there. Well, somebody, I guess, apparently just made up a, a Greek manuscript and put it in there. So it's interesting that for a long period of time, at least what the scholars are saying is that that Trinitarian verse, and I wish I had put it in there and I apologize for that, uh, but it's a familiar one. Um, is, is not, was not in the New Testament. So uh, very interesting there. Um, the other thing that I find accessible in this, in the broadest sense, and also how an evangelical would find it accessible, is that there's, um, there's very little Mormon doctrine in the Book of Mormon. And when I say that, you know, most evangelicals think, think that baptism for the dead and plurality of gods and so many of the doctrines that make the Salt Lake, uh, you know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, so unique to not only to Protestants, uh, you know, for a lot of evangelicals who don't really understand, um, you know, what this is all, all about. Uh, you know, a lot of Mormon doctrine is kind of scary to people when I try to explain to them, you know, the Book of Mormon has very little Mormon in, is Mormonism in it. Now, moving on to my um, next point is it has a very high view of scripture. Now, when I say that I'm, I'm speaking, this is more like as how would an evangelical in general, how would they appreciate the Book of Mormon? Well, in one sense, it is, it does have a high view of scripture. Why, why do I say that? Well, it takes the Bible literally, right? In other words, there was a Tower of Babel, right? Uh, and the, that the Jaredites fleed from. And uh, so somebody who like takes the Bible very literally in the evangelical camp, uh, well, you know, that's interesting that it, it, it's, it takes the Bible literally. It also, in one sense, uh, solves the Isaiah problem, right? So if the Book of Mormon were found to be <laughs> true, right? Like, like, if, like if there's the consensus comes out that, hey, this is a legitimate ancient document. Well, we have like a defense of the Book of Isaiah. And the reason I explain that in modern scholarship, most modern scholars say that I think maybe up to four or five different Isaiahs, okay? And uh, so most modern scholars say uh, the book of Isaiah wasn't written by Isaiah. And, and then uh, it was written over the course of many years, over different periods of time by different authors. So the problem is, is that when Lehi and his crew uh, flee Jerusalem and they have their, uh, their scriptures, right, that they take with them, they have the whole of the book of Isaiah with them. So again, it's, it, they, in other words, they believe that Isaiah wrote Isaiah. The Book of Mormon assumes that Isaiah wrote the Book of Isaiah, right? 
So I find that to be just an interesting thing. And I try to tell people, my, my, my evangelical friends, I said, you realize that if the Book of Mormon were to be proven to be true, that it actually would do more to help uh, strengthen the Bible than anything. <laughs> so it shouldn't be, in other words, don't be threatened by it, right? Because there's very little in there that the, the actual you know, text and what's in the, the Book of Mormon is not, should not be a scary thing to an evangelical. I also like um, the, the ongoing story within the Book of Mormon is about how people, uh, when, they're, when they're right with God and they are uh, people that are united and they're, uh, they're looking out for one another and they're living um, Christ-like and following the, following the scriptures and the law of Moses and everything like that, that society can function it can, there can be harmony in that society and the people will prosper. But then it shows that um, if you turn your back on God, then bad things will happen. And that's kind of an ongoing theme throughout the Book of Mormon. I mean, if anything, it's trying to tell you anything. Uh, don't turn your back on God, right? Well, as an evangelical, why would they have a problem with that, right? And so now this is the other thing too, like, okay, if we want to look at it metaphorically, like let's, let's say I'm talking to John Hamer, right? Well, if you go and um, turn your back on your moral and ethical core, you know, the fiber of who you are as an individual, guess what bad thing is going to happen? So it can be viewed metaphorically, it can be viewed literally, and that's how scripture actually should be read. It should be read in different levels, like Origen advocated that. I think that's a way of looking at it. So I, I like that. And one thing I forgot to add onto my list, but I come from the evangelical camp that we believe in, uh, you know, having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, having a born-again experience, and we, we believe in what's called uh, believer's baptism, right? Well, what is one of the things that the Book of Mormon makes it very clear? Infant baptism is no. There's no infant baptism that's not allowed. There's, that's a great, uh, terrible thing to do, to, to practice. And so, um, you know, I, I just think that that's, a, that that's kind of like, it, from my camp, my particular camp within evangelicalism, because there are some evangelicals that don't have a problem or uh, actually advocate on behalf of infant baptism. So here we go to what are the stumbling blocks that this evangelical or evangelicals in general might encounter. Well, first of all, I think the, the, the top one would be the Book of Mormon <clears throat> teaches a fortunate fall. Now, the idea of a fortunate fall is not necessarily foreign to Christianity. Um, of course, we, we have Milton in Paradise Lost. Uh, he, he talks about it, and it's an intriguing idea. And then throughout Christian history, there have been people who have this idea that there was, quote unquote, a fortunate fall is not necessarily foreign to uh, Christianity, but it's definitely something, it's kind of a fringe out there position, but it's not entirely foreign to Christianity, but generally speaking, uh, the fall, you know, I, I went to an old school Christian school, right? It was by Dutch reformed people who became charismatics, okay? So this is a very conservative school. We were taught by McGuffey readers in kindergarten, okay? And when they do the alphabet, it says, the very first is A, at Adam's fall, we send all. And that's what we are taught in the McGuffey readers. This was, uh, that was a phraseology that, that they used. And so that's foundational to Protestantism, right? Is the idea of uh, original sin and that at the fall of Adam, that this is a great tragedy. Now, this is something that shouldn't be looked at as fortunate, but should looked at, be looked at as something that's really tragic. And that would be the traditional Protestant as well as the Catholic position. And so we don't look at anything 
very fortunate about the fall. We also feel that the, what Christ had to do to come and redeem mankind was to, to reverse the effects of this great sin that happened and, that, and, and then what Christ did at, at the redemption. Um, so that's, that's a stumbling block. Now, when I was talking to Patrick McKay, he did tell me, he said, well, we do believe that we have fallen natures. I'm like, okay, I can work with that, right? If you have fallen natures, and I can understand too, like, well, how is it that because Adam and Eve partook of a particular piece of fruit, that that somehow condemns me to eternal damnation, right? That's an understandable thing. I get that. And so I can, I can work with that, right? Another one would be because I come from a traditional Protestant background, but I've since kind of moved on to a, 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 obviously a much different direction than the rest of my peers, is that the Book of Mormon teaches works-based salvation, um, most notably after all that we can do. We are saved by grace through Christ after all that we can do. Um, okay, so the traditional understanding of, uh, of the Reformation was is that we're saved through grace alone, through faith alone. And this is like foundational to the Protestantism, as well to the evangelical movement as a whole and charismatic, generally speaking, they all embrace the idea that we're saved through grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, okay? Um, Saying so that verse, after all that we can do, um, kind of, you know, kind of like, Ugh, you know, I don't know what to do with that. But I will tell you that um, we also have the book of James, in our Bible, <laughs> and it says faith without works is dead, right? So uh, a lot of Protestant reformers like to ignore that verse. As a matter of fact, Luther said the book of James is a uh, gospel, a straw gospel. Like he would, if he had his way, Luther would have thrown that thing out, okay? But it was there and he had to deal with it. And Calvinists and uh, people who believe in uh, uh, justification through faith alone, you have to accept the fact that that is in the book of James. So that sounds a lot like after all we can do, right? Um, so then there's, this is the one that kind of really gets me and, and, and I'd like to have maybe a conversation with you all about this after the thing. And that is the idea that um, the appearance of Christ in the Book of Mormon seems to undermine his work in the old world. Um, feels like an Old Testament story. Let me explain to you why. Um, what Jesus did at the cross was that he, that was the beginning of the redemption of all creation as a result of what happened at the fall, okay? And when Jesus came, the, the veil was torn at the time, uh, at this period of time during the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The, the, the veil was torn. Um, the idea that all people, all the entire world, the entire creation is, has, is it, it can have access to the Savior, that it's no longer just for a chosen people, but it's for all of people. And that the, the way that God would deal with his people, being all of humanity now, would be different than how uh, Yahweh dealt with them in the Old Testament you know, through uh, destruction and through uh, wars and all these things that are very commonplace because the book, uh, the, the Old Testament is obviously a very bloody document, just like the Book of Mormon is, especially during the war chapters. But when he comes to the new world, as the narrative goes, you have the three days of darkness, you have this destruction, you have cities being destroyed, you just have this, it's an apocalyptic story. It just doesn't seem to mesh with the Jesus and his ministry of what he was doing in the new world. And it wasn't just for the new world, but it was for all of creation. Okay. And so for then him to go to the new world and act like Yahweh more than Jesus is something that is a stumbling block. It would be a stumbling block to most Protestants 
and 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 it is something in the back of my mind that yeah that jesus that comes back to the new world initially and this is the thing because this is the initial thing you have the destruction you have like you know, woe unto you and all these cities are being and it's like okay this sounds like apocalyptic and old testament doesn't sound like what jesus is just right after jesus has finished work at the cross it just seems to contradict that christ that's all that's just my perception on it now i'll give you guys an out on this because i do believe I'm working on it. This is kind of an ad hoc um, thing where I'm thinking like, okay, um, a lot of people don't realize, but the destruction of the temple in AD 70 is something that is very, very important in the New Testament, and it looms very large. Now, whether you are somebody who believes that much of the New Testament was written before the destruction or after the destructions, it's irrelevant. The destruction of the temple is a big deal in the New Testament. Now, with Jesus in, the, in Matthew, he talks about there are those who are here this generation will not come to pass we'll see these things happen within this generation well biblical generation is 40 years this is approximately AD 30 when Jesus's ministry is going on and exactly 40 years later a biblical generation we have the destruction of the temple so the idea of the birth uh, the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the destruction of the temple are I mean, the destruction of the temple is just like one step below because this, the, the, the idea that the, the abode of God where God dwelt on planet Earth was destroyed. So that's an apocalyptic, that's the apocalypse right there in one sense, is the destruction of the temple. So I will say maybe that's a way you can make it work, that Jesus was kind of, when he came to the new world, he was kind of combining the destruction of the temple with his finished work at the cross. That's an ad hoc uh, argument, but I think there's something you can work with there. Okay, so here's the traditional thing. Uh, <laughs> the Book of Mormon seems to reflect 19th century Americana, right? And to an outsider, it does appear to do that. Um, you know, we have the famous quote from Alexander Campbell about how basically this seems to resolve every argument that's going on in uh, this, part, this part of the country in the burned over district. All the arguments are settled, uh, the modes of baptism and all this kind of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, so that's the argument that was early on. As a matter of fact, that was like the first evangelical criticism of the Book of Mormon was Alexander Campbell's, Campbell's uh, expose on it, you know, just talking about this, uh, the, the, the 19th century Americana in the book. Now, you know, Jonathan Neville, and I'll, I'll get to his book in a second, in his, in his newest book called uh, Infinite Goodness, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and the Book of Mormon, um, he accepts the idea that 19th century anachronisms and stuff would be in there because Joseph Smith uh, was a translator and he would be translating uh, in a world th that exists around him. So the translator is going to be influenced by the outside. If you're doing like a traditional translation, you know, where you're working off the text and you're translating right to another language. So when you're trying to find words, you know, this is a, this is the non uh, the idea of not having a seer stone, but the original idea of using the interpreters and doing the translation idea of the Book of Mormon. So like, and and I and in in. The analogy would be like in, in the Renaissance period, Renaissance period, a lot of the paintings of biblical scenes often where people were, they were dressed in the garb of their period of time, the armor of the soldiers was, they were wearing that garb. So the idea that as they were translating, if you will, the stories of the Bible, they were also bringing in their world into those paintings, okay? And so that kind of can explain the 19th century, but there are, there are issues there, okay? I'm not trying to, but I do think that that's an explanation that I think could maybe um, help in that regard. Um, and so then there's the, the finding of the plates and the process of translation. Now, the process of translation would be 
um, the idea of the uh, having this using the seer stone, right? To a lot of uh, evangelicals, the idea that something like a, an occultic occultic practice being used to uh, create divine scripture, especially to a modern evangelical, they would find very disturbing. Also, the finding of the plates, right? The story, like, okay, how is this? This farm boy finds these plates, and I mean, it does. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, is this just a tall tale, right? Is this some kind of frontier tall tale of this semi-literate farm boy finding these plates? And then he's just kind of, he's a great storyteller and he creates this document, right? So, but I, I do want to say that in defense is, I want to give you guys some context. Now, my grandfather um, ended up having one of the largest plumbing distributors, he's one of the largest plumbing distributors in, in the Midwest. The company still exists to this day. But it's, he started off with um, doing uh, drilling for wells, okay? Now, my grandfather originally was from Chicago, and then the Canadian government sent a lot of people down to Roseland. The, the Roseland area of Chicago was of the primary Dutch community, and they wanted Dutch people to come up and farm their land. So my, my grandfather went to Western Canada. So he's on the frontier. The world that he lived in and grew up in was very similar to the world that Joseph Smith grew in. Now, this was a century later, but still was very similar. And, and I'm getting to a point here. So my grandfather starts a well digging business and, um, and he also has a plumbing business. And then it became a plumbing distribution business. Well, I just remember going through old calendars that they used to put out like in the fifties and sixties. And in these calendars, um, they had astrological symbols, a lot of cultic stuff, right? And this is a Christian man who uh, actually had an encounter with my grandfather, had an encounter with an angel. Uh, this angel came to him and said that his business was going to succeed and that he would be blessed. And then, he, and then he walks down the street and then this angel disappears. This is the story my grandpa tells me. This is part of our family lore. That's just part of my life and how it goes. So, but he was a religious man and a Christian man, but he still used occultic stuff in his calendars. Now, if you go to the, into our, the stores now and ask for a calendar, it's gonna all have Bible verses in it, right? So I just want to give you context that Joseph did grow up in a different time and place. And the idea that, and, and, and just to give you an idea, it was a well digger. They used dowsing rods, okay, to find the water. So, uh, so the world my, my grandfather inhabited was very similar to the Joseph, the world that Joseph inhabited. So I feel a connection there. And I think evangelicals uh, do themselves a disservice by not realizing that many of their brethren were also doing the same thing that Joseph were and that they had a similar background in culture as well. So I'm just getting back to this idea of infinite goodness, Joseph Smith, Jonathan Edwards, and the Book of Mormon. So I interviewed, my second interview with Jonathan Neville was discussing the influence of uh, Jonathan Edwards on the document. Now, um, because he believes he was a translator, he believes that when he was, after his surgery, and he was uh, staying at an uncle's, and he was on, immobile, he believes that um, he was exposed to the writings of Jonathan Edwards. So uh, what he did was he did a word study, a word analysis, a Google word analysis of the Book of Mormon and found, okay, what are all the phrases and verses that are in the Bible that are also in the Book of Mormon? And then he said, okay, what are all the phrases and stuff that are in the Book of Mormon that aren't in the Bible, right? So then he does this word analysis and finds that he keeps on getting back to Jonathan Edwards, so he believes as a translator, he was heavily influenced because he said, I was in, intimately acquainted with the clergy of the time. Well, he feels that he was intimately uh, acquainted through, through them, through their writings. And so here we have Jonathan Edwards. Okay, so and this is the thing. Um, the natural man is an enemy to God. That's not in the Bible. Jonathan Edwards used that phrase. And there are other many phrases that, that uh, Jonathan Edwards used that make itself into the Book of Mormon. 
um, as an evangelical. Jonathan Edwards in the Book of Mormon. I kind of like that. Um, so then I just want to read you my review that I gave on the Book of Mormon for my, um, for my podcast. Uh, and evangelical reviews his books of Mormon. The actual physical copy of of a Book of Mormon had a profound effect on me as a young child. From the Arnold Freiburg paintings to the idea of new scripture for our time sparked my imagination. The Book of Mormon is an audacious enterprise, whether it was the product of a clever farm boy or a modern prophet of the Lord. The book has been mocked and ridiculed from the very beginning, but in its own way has stood the test of time. It is time for evangelicals to put aside their stereotypes and prejudices and truly engage the text, and more importantly, the believers of this book. So I think that's what's also important too. You know, as a um, evangelical, we're all about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and having Jesus as the center of your life. And so anybody that confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we have a book uh, that purports to be scripture found by this young farm boy that says Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, okay, I don't have a problem with that. So I want to uh, just put out a few shout outs and I'll be, I, I'm, I'm winding down, but I got a few more minutes here. Um, I want to put out a few things to a couple guys because with my channel, um, I, when I first started, the very first person, I got a call from Patrick McKay and he called me and, and, and because Paul, okay, Paul Ludi, I got it right. I got your pronounce. I got it pronounced right. Paul Ludi said, you need to talk to Patrick. So I, I ordered because I was ordering some books from Paul Ludi because Barbara Walden of the community of Christ said, Hey, if you need to get a copy of the Joseph Smith third uh, autobiography or biography, um, Paul, uh, Paul Ludi might have a copy. So I bought a used copy from him and he said, you need to talk to Patrick. Well, then Patrick called me on a Saturday night and we had a wonderful, wonderful conversation. You have to understand the trajectory of my channel was to be more secular and scholarly in nature, but Patrick introduced a more spiritual dimension and it affected me. And of course, of course, right? I mean, I'm dealing with a major religion and we sometimes people who are kind of like the anthropologists and the scholars, they don't look at the spiritual. They don't even take it into account. Well, that's to their loss because the spiritual is foundational to who we are as human beings. Whether you believe in God or not, we're all hardwired to be spiritual. That's just who we are, right? So I think embracing the spiritual and integrating into my channel is like fundamentally important. And then there's Rick Bennett, who um, just has taken me under his wing and has done a wonderful thing for me in helping me with the launching of my channel and doing uh, a, a, a joint production with his Gospel Tangents uh, podcast. I got on the phone with him and two hours later, he agreed to come on my show and uh, we've become very close friends uh, since. And then I want to feature my friend Christopher Thomas, who's one of the top uh, Pentecostal theologians in the world and wrote that wonderful book, A Pentecostal Reads the Book of Mormon. And um, he is fascinated by the Book of Mormon. And I should have gotten to this early, but essentially there's, um, there's two things that Christopher discovered about the Book of Mormon. And that was, it's full of Pentecostal doctrine. The idea of baptism by fire with evidence of tongues is something that comes out of Azusa Street, 1906. That's a doctrine that was developed and is unique to the Pentecostal movement from a little over hundred years ago, but it found its way into the Book of Mormon. 70 years or so before the Azusa Street Revival. So he's truly fascinated by that as a Pentecostal. How is Pente a key Pentecostal doctrine making itself into the Book of Mormon? Also, well, 
I would love to tell you about his discovery about the anti-Lehi, uh, anti-Nephi. Anti oh my goodness, I'm messing this one up. You guys know what I'm talking about. But he found something very interesting about that as well in the book, which is also fascinating. Um, Anti-Lehi. Oh no. Okay, I'm not going to try. So <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Sometimes I'm going to butcher it. It's not not the world I grew up in. Um, so I just want to thank what I would call kind of my personal trinity, if you will, of friends who helped launch this channel. He was my first uh, book review. Rick was my first interview. So I got the theologian. I have the friend, and I have a man who uh, is a spiritual man. So it's just a wonderful endeavor with you. So where has my journey taken me? Well, I started off um, with the idea of starting a small YouTube channel of a subject I really enjoyed. During this journey, I have met many wonderful people from the community of Christ to the restoration branches to the church of Jesus Christ, all the way to the church of Jesus Christ, all have shown kindness to a stranger, a very Christ-like attribute. Thank you for welcoming you, welcoming me into your communities. I just wanted to show you this picture I attended in um, just outside of Tarpon Springs, Florida. And it's about an hour and 20 minute drive from where I live in Florida. I had the opportunity to visit your uh, Pentecost, the, the Pentecostal branch, although Patrick will tell me that all, all restorationists are Pentecostals, um, that, uh, that the Church of Jesus Christ um, warmly embraced me. And about a half dozen people came up to me and said, we love your YouTube channel. We love your videos. I was blown away by that. <laughs> the first restorationist church that I stepped foot in, and they already knew who I was. And that had to do with, too, with Patrick, because he was friends with a lot of people in that church. And oops. And um, so I had a wonderful church service. It lasted three hours. It seemed like it was 45 minutes long. I had a wonderful time uh, affiliating. So I think that this church in particular, and they believe, okay, they love Jesus. They love the Bible and they love the Book of Mormon. And these are precious people. And I felt very comfortable and very much at home. And if the Book of Mormon can produce a people like that, that are loving and wonderful and also uh, very accessible to most. I'm, I'm gonna take about two or three people from my, my community to worship with them this fall when I get back to, um, when I get back into my area that I'm, I'm heading out of town tomorrow. So, but this is, this is just kind of a really cool experience. So I went from just doing a secular scholarly thing to ended up attending services and worshiping in a restorationist church. And it was a wonderful time had by all. And this all had to do with, because this young boy encountered around the age of seven or eight, these Arnold Freiburg paintings of the Book of Mormon, and that planted a seed that caused me to then end up at the pulpit or right by their altar <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and being able to share with these people a wonderful experience. So um, again, my name is Stephen Pinecker. The name of my channel is Mormon Book Reviews. I have my contact information up there. So my email is up there. That's linked to my YouTube channel. My website is still GoDaddy right now, but it, the actual name is going to be mormonbookreviews.com. I just got to upgrade to a different package to, um, so that it's that. So I just have to, do, I haven't gotten around to do that. And then friend me on Facebook. Um, that's my Facebook link as well. Um, also, one more thing. Um, my, the fourth book review I ever did was on Joseph Smith III. And for whatever reason, nobody's watching that video. That becomes my dead last video every time. Like it will be, uh, I'll release a new video and within a day, a few days or a week, that video will pass it up. And I'm like, guys, give my Joseph Smith III, uh, especially you Community of Christ people, uh, give that video some love and, uh, and watch it, please. Because I, I think I did a pretty good job with it. But either way, um, I want to thank you all. I'll open it up for any questions. 
And uh, I do appreciate this opportunity that Paul gave me. And I want to say, too, I gave, you know, I listed three people, but, you know, Paul and so many other people have just been wonderful. I can't, I, I, it would take me probably 20 minutes to thank all the people of the restoration that have meant so much to me and have just been so precious to me. And I'm very excited about this endeavor. And I have some wonderful guests lined up. And uh, again, just thank you for your time. And that's it. That's my presentation.